Welcome to Amazing Business Radio with best-selling author and customer service and business expert, Shep Hyken. Shep will talk with some of the smartest thinkers in business to help make you more successful in your professional and personal life. This is Amazing Business Radio with Shep Hyken. Hello, everyone. Shep Hyken here on Amazing Business Radio on the CBS and Play It Network. And I am excited today because we have a phenomenal guest, Juliet Funt, who is the CEO of White Space at Work, which is a training and consultancy firm. Uh, we'll let you know a little bit in a moment about what White Space is, because I'm sure, like you, when I first heard the term White Space, I go, okay, I know what White Space is, but what is White Space at Work? So she flips the norms of business in order to reclaim their creativity, productivity, and engagement, and that's important to any and every business, regardless of how small or how big, what industry they're in. She is recognized as an expert in coping with the age of overload, which is something that I know I personally experience, not just daily, but hourly, maybe by the minute. I'm looking at my desk right now. I'm going, oh my, I'm overloaded. Well, Julia, welcome to Amazing Business Radio. Thank you. Nice to see you. Yeah. Well, here, yeah. I yeah. guess I can't see you. Well, I see a picture of you, and that's good enough for me. It's been a long time since I've seen you, Julia. This is not right. We need to make that no, uh, change. Well, that's the age of overload. We can't have time to just fly somewhere just to be with friends. But maybe as we're more aspirational about white space in our entire world, we can find more time to do that. All right, so we're going to talk about white space. What is white space, and why is it so important? Why should our listeners say, hey, I can't leave till this show is over? <laughs> well, white space is what we believe to be the most endangered element of modern work, and it is specifically the strategic pause, the little windows of time in between our busyness that allow us to be more thoughtful and creative and engaged. And slowly, as business has become busier and busier, as we've been more used to an intense pace and cadence being the norm, we gave up these little sips of time, and, and we believe that that is at great cost to our sustainability, to our ability to recuperate, connect interpersonally, all sorts of different taxes from having absolutely no time in between the seamless, frenetic activities of our of our day. Wow. So basically, it's taking a little bit of time off. Now, I just came back uh, from a meeting this past weekend with a gentleman in New York who did something I think is it's white space on steroids. He took a sabbatical, and I believe he took the full year off, and he said it was the most incredible experience. He walked away from his business uh, because he knew that it was sustainable on its own based by, upon the people he had working for them, and he came back a year later. He didn't call in. He didn't check in. I don't know how anybody could do that, but he did it, and when he came back, boy, he is rocking and rolling, and I think I, I guess that would be white space on steroids? Yes, it, it would be, although the, the basic nature of white space is always misunderstood as a break or a, or a nap or goofing off time or taking time off. Actually, white space is a very business-relevant period of time. So in that period of time, you could take a break, but you also could be parsing out that time for pursuit of deeper ideas, more flexible creativity, the thoughts around strategy and introspection that we don't have time for. So there is a duality in white space, and sometimes it is really a break, and sometimes it is actually the most productive time you'll spend all day because it's for the deeper kind of thought that we put to the side in favor of frenetic activity, more email, stupid meetings, that kind of thing. All right, so um, I want to make I sure I understand this. I love the idea of someone this. taking a... Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. 
You love the idea. No, of, I love the, the idea of this man wandering off into the wilderness with his white space. But it's uh, it's such a um, infrequently relatable story for the average overloaded person that I think that's like watching Greg Louganis do a dive. And yeah, it'd be great if I could do that too, but I can't. Right, right. And for those who don't know who Greg Louganis is, who I believe <laughs> was a uh, Olympic diver in the eighties. Yes, thank okay, you for okay. dating me there. He know, came out. I know. I, I loved know. him until he hit his head. He was. He oh, was. wasn't that sad? Wasn't that sad? Um, yes. And uh, but anyway, for those who don't know who Greg is, now you know. So white space. So uh, as I first heard it, you know, I I'm reminded of uh, the two people that are sawing trees, uh, and it's a contest who can saw more trees, and one refuses to stop, and the other one, every once in a while, the guy who refuses to stop looks over and he sees his competitor sitting uh, on on a chair, just relaxing, and actually what he was doing was sharpening the axe, and therefore mm-hmm. he was able to uh, be more productive when he was working and cut more trees down. Is that kind of the same concept? There is an element of that there, certainly, that, that metaphor. Um, you wouldn't redline a machine the way that we redline human beings, in, especially in the larger corporations, but down to smaller companies as well. We've all gotten very used to just running as fast as we can all day long, never taking a break, and we sort of convince ourselves and convince others that that is sustainable. But physically, we know that there are prices to be paid. Um, in terms of the creativity, the engagement, the productivity, unless we do take that step back and kind of look at how we're working, it's very hard to have any kind of deeper thought. And um, and there are prices that organizations pay on a broader context in terms of retention and turnover and engagement. And you just um, you have to look at the math, which is you just can't put in uh, you can't put people in the output mode every single second of the day and expect them to have anything left. So, so this there's is, a yeah, culture I'm, element, too. I'm confused because I want to make sure I understand it. So it's really not taking time during the day to relax or rejuvenate. There's something else there, it sounds like. Yes. Yeah, so there's you can think of it as a dualistic kind of a yin-yang of white space. So there is the recuperative aspect, and that is I've been on conference calls for three and a half hours straight, and I need to just... Oh, and that is definitely a white space moment. But okay. there's also and how long would that moment convers- last? It's completely up to the user. A half a second, five minutes, an hour and a half. It, that that there's no prescriptive nature in the way that one uses white space. All right. The the basic idea is to respect the power of the pause itself, and then use it nimbly in a customized way that suits your work style. So that's sort of one half, the recuperative side. The other side is I put aside white space as an employee, as an employer, as a leader, because I realize that deep thought will always elude me when I'm constantly in motion. So we have this mirage that activity is the same thing as productivity. So we just feel proud and high on the adrenaline of jamming more in the day. We also might stop to use a white space moment to allow deeper thoughts to have a place to grace us with their presence, to think about strategy, um, to introspect, to say, what kind of leader am I? To say, how did that conversation go? To say, what meeting is coming up and how can I contribute? We think that those deeper thoughts also live in the white space. So it's uh, maybe a sense of planning or reflection, uh, not closing your eyes and relaxing, but actually stepping aside and, and maybe giving a more thoughtful process to something. Yeah, it's a yes and. It is the pause itself is the technique, and how you use the pause can be very customized. 
on a cultural level beyond the individual level. It's looking at an entire population or an entire organization and just simply looking at is there breathing room? Is there oxygen in this system? Is there a place for people to think, strategize, recuperate, connect, think about what's coming up instead of just jumping like a gerbil onto the next wheel that's put in front of them? Wow. And I love your line, a mirage, that activity is the same as productivity. That's tweetable, by the way. And if it hasn't <laughs> been tweeted out, somebody tweet should do out, that baby. right now. Tweet it. I'll, I'll, see it. I'll see you in two minutes. All right. Um, What's your hashtag? Uh, I'm not a tweeter. It's a white space thing. But um, I have a lot of people who are pushing me to do that. So soon I'm sure you'll be inundated with white space tweets, whether you like it or not. Okay. Hash, not currently. Hashtag white space at work. Okay, which, by the way, whitespaceatwork.com is your website. Let's put that shameless plug in there right now for people (laughs) to learn more about it. All right, so how do we as as companies, you know, how are we impacted by Whitespacer? Or, you know, I I guess you've got it professionally. uh, I can see the benefit that you're talking about, but uh, give me some benefit. Uh, How are we impacted by it? And and what's the cost if we don't participate in the concept of Whitespace? Sure. So that pain point is probably the best place to start, which is that companies tend to suffer in three different categories when they don't have white space within their culture. And that is quantity, quality, and sustainability. And I'll break those down. So the quantity pain point is around, I don't have enough. I don't have enough people. I don't have enough headcount. I don't have enough bandwidth. It's just not enough humans, not enough hands to do the stuff that we have to do. Um, white space alleviates that problem by bringing in more time, by cutting lower value tasks and regaining simplicity. So there's that quantity pain point. The quality pain point is my people can't do high level work anymore. We're just, we're so driven. We're so busy. We're connected 24 seven. We are worn out and there's really no room for that higher knowledge work that we brought these smart people in for. And that's a quality problem. Um, and then there's the sustainability problem, and that's the one that's both by the smarter leaders who are really looking around the corner and looking into the future, and they're seeing that sustainability problem of, I can't really drive my people for very long. And usually you suffer two of the three. You can do high quantity and high quality, but you can't do it for very long. And you could do high quantity. You can make people do lots of stuff for a long time, but it's going to be very low quality work. And so somewhere in this tri- triage, a tri- triad of quality, quantity, or sustainability, that's really where the pain is. And one of the treats about the work that we do is we tend to work with really interesting, risk-taking, future-thinking people because they are the ones that are lifting their heads up out of the current norm and out of what's currently acceptable and, and usual and looking ahead a little bit. Right. I, I have a friend of mine that actually so much of what's important to him is he takes a break in the middle of the day, and it, it, it and I think he doesn't, maybe this is a white space tactic, if you will. Uh, mm-hmm. He has a lot of reading material. And that's his time. And it's not reading related to specifically the job that he does. It's mm-hmm. related to what's going on in the world uh, that impacts the job that he does. So it's an industry magazine. It's, in other words, he's not reading something like his company financials. He's reading an industry magazine. And he takes the time to do this. And, you know, once again, I use that term. He's sharpening his axe. But I think he's breaking away. And as a result... He seems to be more calm and even more productive. And it sounds to me like he's getting the quantity, quality, and the sustainability because he's not getting burnt out on top of it all. Yes, 
And and the highest executive functions of our mind don't work well when we are in um, that kind of mode where we're hunkered down and pushing all the time. In fact, the default mode, the default neural network of our mind does not allow large thoughts, creative thoughts when it's hunkered down in uh, fight or flight mode. And so we really literally have to open a door to allow the kind of thinking that we would be most proud of into our day. I say frequently, if you sat in a room all day long and you didn't do anything, but at 4.45 you had a giant game-changing aha idea that changed the course of your company, we would call that a productive day, but we wouldn't call it an active day. And that's that activity-productivity duality again that that is, is an interesting framework for people who are just whose bodies are in such constant motion that they can't even imagine taking a pause. Right. And I think, you know, as I, I think about it, it impacts you professionally because you can't be a peak performer unless you uh, step aside and give yourself that white space. Uh, the company's probably impacted financially because if people are already always operating in that activity mode, uh, they're probably, even though they think they're getting the most out of them, they're probably burning them out. Uh, physically, the people are feeling right. that way. And, uh, I, I can see this was, is working for me. I'm getting the picture. It's clear. I, <laughs> when the idea and, you know, of white of, yeah, go ahead. In the very early days of white space, I don't know if you've interviewed Mark Sanborn on this show, but he's a, a brilliant uh, speaker and consultant. And I know a Mark. Of both of ours, I know. <laughs> yeah, and he um, he told me a story many years ago that always stuck in the back of my white space brain about he used to go to Starbucks with nothing but a legal pad and a pen and no technology and just see what came out and let ideas bubble up and that was the only place where his mind had the uh, experience of that playground unencumbered by the pull of technology and beeping and ding so that he could actually let those ideas out and I never forgot that as a very white space-ish tactic. Well, this, this is important information for all of us to know. I, I know that I'm getting a clearer vision of what white space is. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a really short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk more with Juliet Font about white space at work, why it's important, why you must do it, maybe some techniques and tactics to make us, uh, you know, to, to, to actually incorporate that into our daily routine. So we'll be right back. Don't go away. This is Shep Hyken on Amazing Business Radio. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. You're listening to Amazing Business Radio with best-selling author and customer service and business expert, Shep Hyken. Shep Hyken here. Back on Amazing Business Radio on the CBS and Play It Network. And I am excited, as you know, because we're talking with Juliet Funt about white space at work. And we've learned a number of things about what white space is. That's really important. Uh, it's not just taking a break. It's, it is taking a break from what you're doing, perhaps, but substituting uh, what you might think is just shutting your eyes and relaxing, although that could be white space, uh, replacing it with something that could cause you uh, to have deeper reflection, maybe come up with a great idea, maybe just break away and, and keep your productivity strong. My favorite line, and I already mentioned it, it's the mirage that activity is the same as productivity. So welcome back, Juliet. Um, let's start off by this. Uh, the biggest obstacle, um, I would imagine that you're going to get resistance from people uh, about wanting to do this, or maybe even resistance from a leadership saying, I don't know if we have a culture that uh, facilitates, you know, taking time away or, or, you know, separating from the activity. What are the big obstacles? 
So the biggest obstacle probably, uh, although the one you mentioned when we were on a break was the boss, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but the biggest obstacle probably is social conformity. And that is that we're all just finally acculturated to working in this crazy, frenetic, ever-connected way. And we keep looking at each other, and the person next to you is doing it, and the person next to you is doing it, and the person across from you is doing it, and so it becomes very normative. And it's incredibly difficult for forward-thinking people to break out of something where it really, really has a strong uh, element of social conformity. But the thing that actually can push you out of it is some sort of pain point. So for companies, obviously, that often correlates to the bottom line. Um, that correlates, again, I said earlier, to an engagement loss. Maybe their scores come back from their latest gallop and it's terrible. Or maybe pe- they're losing some talent to places where the work-life balance is a little saner. It's usually a pain point that can crack open that conformity. And that loops us back to your point of the boss. Um, the, the front line will always lean into white space. They're desperate for it, like oxygen. Most people you talk to in an audience, in a passing, in a networking event, will say, oh, my God, we need that so badly. But it is dependent on the personality of the leader. If we have an incredibly driven workaholic leader who just wants their people to fall over dead and then be replaced by more people, then we don't even try to bring white space into that environment. But if you have a leader who is forward-thinking, who understands that people, that the human capital is a resource that we need to maximize and cultivate and nurture – then those people tend to lean into white space. So unfortunately, right now, it still is, um, you can do some techniques that will help you have white space no matter where you are, but you still will be somewhat dependent on the willingness of the larger culture around you. So give me what some of those techniques are. So if you're in an unwhite space friendly environment, and it's just all about competing in the Olympics of who's torturing themselves more, you have to look very specifically at your own sphere of control. And so there are two main roads to developing white space. And that, uh, that is you can redistribute effort or you can redistribute excellence. Uh, in the category of redistributing effort, uh, a white space practitioner would constantly be looking through every single thing that they touch and searching for low-value tasks. And what we find is actually there's an enormous amount of low-value activity in everybody's day, but we don't really step back from it enough to notice. So low-value activity could be everything from uh, not delegating something you're capable of delegating. It could be a reliance on ridiculous CC protocol and email where no one's really mindful about who they're attaching to threads. It could be having um, a corporate environment where nine people have to sign off on any decision and running around and getting all those sign-offs. We would call all of that low-value activity. Right. And, I, and by and the way, so, I'm, I'm a, I have experienced all of that, and I experience some of it on a daily basis. And it, It's amazing what people will tolerate, and that, that's that social conformity piece, that, you know, that we're all seeing each other on 35 threads of an email that could be handled with a phone call in five minutes, but it's just what we do, right? So as an individual person, you look within your sphere of control, your to-do list, your inbox, the places where you have the autonomy and ability to say no to things without a ding to your career or aspirations, and you keep asking yourself over and over one question, is there anything I can let go of? And that is one of the core, what we call simplification questions of white space, and it's correlated with this idea of redistributing effort. Um, The flip side of the coin is redistributing excellence, and that is asking over and over and over another simplification question, which is, where could good enough be good enough? And I'll tell you, I'm the 
biggest perfectionist on the perfectionistic seas. There's nobody that loves detail and uh, specificity more than me. But this is the other pocket where we can actually acquire more white space, is to look at the things that we touch and ask ourselves, which of them is truly deserving of that perfectionistic extra layer of excellence? And which of them are we simply doing that because it's habit or because we enjoy the process of dotting I's and crossing T's and really begin to separate the recreational versus the tactical use of excellence. Well, I love this because, well, let's talk about your first one and and that I have uh, created something in my office called, and I get this from my strategic coach, Dan Sullivan, and people who listen to the show know I talk about Dan all the time. He put me through something called an activity inventory. This is really cool. Mm -hmm. Uh, My assistant looked and wrote down everything I did for a week, actually probably two Mm -hmm. weeks. I also did the same thing. And it wasn't like if if I did it once, that was enough. Um, She didn't need to write down that I did it 14 times over the week. Mm-hmm. Just did it one time. Uh, and it could be everything from I'm on the phone talking to a client. I'm uh, writing a thank you note. I'm, uh, uh, we just got a, an order for a, a box of books. And uh, I went over to the storage room and grabbed a box of books and brought them and got them set up. Uh, I actually was smart enough to say I don't need to address the box. Uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> So it was everything like that. And, and we sat down, and there were over 45 different uh, if you want to call them tasks or things that I did over that. And, and some of them were really, really important. And we sat down and we said, what is it that I should only be doing? And what could you or anybody else in my team be doing and, and keep me away from it? So within a matter of literally 15 to 20 minutes, we eliminated 30 of those 45 hmm. different items. And I said, okay, these are the 15 that I'm going to focus on. And the other 30 you need to protect me from myself. Don't let mm-hmm. me do that. I should never be standing over a copy machine, ever. Right. Okay, it's not my job. And you know what? There are people that do that much better than I do because I get frustrated trying to figure out what buttons are what. So that's that's the first piece. And I think that works in, in what you're talking about from the standpoint of, of the first part. So now the excellence, the shift in yeah, excellence. Yeah, before you flip to excellence, sure. before you flip to excellence, let me comment on something that you said that's so important. So. When you're parsing out these lists of what is low value and what is high value, it actually requires some thoughtfulness. For instance, you said you write a thank you note, which I love and I do too, and I don't know how many folks are going to keep doing that in the next 20 years. But someone could say very easily, that's a low value task because it's not really quote unquote necessary. But a thoughtful relationship-based professional would understand that that personal touch of putting your handwriting on a piece of paper and putting in the mail to someone is such an unbelievable, unique differentiator that that's actually a very high-value task. And so sometimes we need to kind of kick around ideas with a teammate, a colleague. Is this low value? Is this high value? Should I be touching it? Kind of like the objectivity you had with your coach. Right. And there's some some tasks, if you will, that I might enjoy doing that I just say, look, you know what, even though I probably shouldn't be doing it, I'm going to give myself this luxury because yep. I like it. And I'm okay with that too. Uh, on the other side of it, uh, and I go back to my coach, Dan Sullivan, because he has something he calls the 80% principle, which is, you know, you said good enough in some cases really is good enough. Well, like you, I want to put out perfect work. I don't know if you know much about what I do on a daily basis or a weekly basis, but I crank out articles and scripts for my, for my blog post, for my Forbes column, for my videos that I do. And here's what I do now. It takes me, let's say my average article that I write once a week takes me about an hour or so to do after I decide what it is I want to write about. 
Unfortunately, if I were to turn that into my editor at Forbes, they would say, we don't want you anymore. <laughs> it's just mm-hmm. not good enough. And it really isn't. But it's 80% good enough. So who does the other 20%? I hand it off to Evan in my office, who is a journalism major, who goes through this and says, Shep, this example stinks. Come on, give me some clarity. Give me another way of saying it. And when I do, he then he tightens it up. He does my editing. Really, that's what it is. It's an editing function. I put all my ideas out there, and it's in pretty decent form. But guess what? At this point, you know, and maybe I've given it to him at 90% of the way there, and he's just tightening it up a little bit. But that's, that's the point. I could spend another three hours on the editing versus the hour that I spent writing the major gist of the article. And I don't know how your audience breaks down if everyone who's listening has the luxury of someone to delegate some pieces of this to or not. But for a frontline manager in a large corporation, a lot of times it's even harder because that last 20% on certain tasks, you actually have to leave hanging on open. You can't have someone else do it. So if you have, if you're working on a deck or a PowerPoint for an internal presentation and it's company culture to massage and tweak and play and spend months getting these slides into a certain order, but it's for an internal non-client facing conversation, sometimes we just have to have the bravery to say, this is good enough, good enough, not Evan, my buddy or my person who works for me is going to fix it, but I'm walking into this meeting because this communicates sufficiently the idea that I'm communicating and the rest is just habit. And so that's kind of, I would say that's the next level of bravery. You walking away is level A, but someone else is going to sew it up and make it look pretty for you. I would say level B is you actually just leave it just like that and trust that it is sufficient. Well, I probably think uh, that happens on some of what I do. Unfortunately, I know it won't work for the writing. We are... <laughs> yeah, no, not for writing. <laughs> writing is not that, uh, not that right, type right. of thing. Yep. So we're so talking you're with... working on it. Go oh, ahead. Go ahead. No, no, okay. no, just so many examples. I know, and, and I'm excited, and you're excited too, and I know it's time <laughs> for a break. We have to do that because if we don't do that, we get in trouble. So let's take okay, a really quick trouble. break. A really quick break. We're going to be right back. We're talking with Juliet Funt. I'm learning all about white space. I'm learning what I need to do starting within the next half hour after I get finished with this show. Don't go away. This is Amazing Business Radio. We're taking a short break. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Amazing Business Radio with Shep Hyken. Shep Hyken here. We're back on Amazing Business Radio on CBS and Play It. And Juliet Funt's been talking to us about white space at work. A little while, we're going to talk about white space at home because that's going to be important as well. But uh, let's talk about the personality types that factor into white space issues. And we've already talked about different types of bosses, uh, people that have high expectations of their employees and maybe even themselves. Uh, What other types of personality types factor into white space? Well, we divide people uh, in four buckets according to some assessments that we run them through if we're doing white space work with a population, and they run around what we call the thieves of productivity. So what are the actual individual uh, thieves that gobble up white space for different personality types? And the thieves are a little counterintuitive because they're assets that run amok. So they're all positive things. They are drive, excellence, information, and activity, and those are all great things. You wouldn't want to work anywhere that didn't have drive, excellence, information, and activity. But once they morph out of their proper size, drive becomes hyperdrive, excellence, perfectionism, information, information overload, and then activity, that frenzy that we were talking about earlier. And different ones of us gravitate 
toward different ones of them. So we see some people are high in drive. Some people are high in information there. They love to just read and devour and be lost in data. Some people are like me, and they fall down around perfectionism, where nothing is ever good enough, and they just go down the rabbit hole of that endless tweaking that we left off with before the break. So depending on which of the thieves you're most predisposed to, you will have a template for what is going to not only probably have robbed you of white space in the past, but what will continue to threaten you based on your predisposition, even long into your mastery of white space. Wow. You know what? You've just said something, and it's a a revelation. Revelation. (laughs) I talk. I do. Revelation. (laughs) I talk good. I know. I know. So here is what I'm thinking. Is it one person's white space activity may be another person's overactivity. So tell me more about that. Yeah, if I'm the person that's, you know, hey, I'm I'm totally involved in doing my work. I'm at the keyboard banging stuff out and then I take that break, I step away. I want to get deep into thought. So I'm going to give myself the luxury of some white space. I'm going to pick up maybe an industry magazine and get a perspective from an expert and it's going to just take me away from that high uh high activity output move me into another place that's a good white space activity it it can be we one of the basic tenets of all of white space is that if it feels good for you if it gives you the benefit then it's then it's your version of white space so with constant arguments is it exercise white space is it not it really depends on you great so on the flip side feel a sense of departure yes then it, it is. Yeah, it's you know I could be reading what's going on in the world, which gives me an idea of hey, we need to bring something like this into our company or whatever. But on the flip side, maybe I'm that person that you just mentioned who's just constantly involved in reading and focusing on what what I just described as my white space activity. That's what they're doing all day long, and they need right. to break away and do something else. So one man's white space activity might be another man or woman's, uh, you know, over over stimulation of, of work and productivity. It actually could be. You can almost imagine it as a, a calendar day and you're looking at someone's calendar. In fact, the term very long time ago kind of came from those white spaces on the calendar. So is there any pause? Is there any transition time in between your seamless activities? What you do within that transition time or pause is infinitely customizable. The point is that it's there. Excellent. So white space at home. I know that when we were on the break, you mentioned something about this applies uh, to your personal lives and at home as well. Yes. So, uh, you know, we make our bread and butter, spend our days in the corporate world. But, of course, you are with human beings. And when human beings leave their jobs, there's sort of a mirage that everything stops that's relevant to work for a period of time. And we believe that that is so unbelievably not true. So uh, from first, from a business perspective, the way we are able to shut off, recuperate, deepen relationships at home is incredibly relevant to the fuel with which we are able to then re-enter the workplace, sort of the daily equivalent of your friend who went on the one-year sabbatical. Um, but while we are at home, we, we love the opportunity that we get when we're doing 95% of our focus on business. The companies usually let us throw in a little bit of focus on children and home life. And we, we love that because we're passionate about making sure that the idea of the strategic pause, improvisational time, open, flexible, unscheduled time on the weekends, that that makes it home. And it's wonderful for our health and our relationships and especially our children who are busier than any Fortune 500 CEO 
you have ever met. So this idea of taking the habit of the pause home with you, the habit of time stretching out a little bit home with you is incredibly rich. Excellent. So it's the, it's the white space at home. I would imagine, uh, you know, I, I don't want to sound sexist, the soccer mom, but it could be the soccer dad, the soccer parents. How about this? The, 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 the parents that have three boys five seven and nine years old who have soccer <laughs> hey, that practices sounds familiar. yeah music uh they like to go on you know hiking etc 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 and uh, i believe that describes you i'll bet I think that's me your saturdays are crazy with no white space well they're really not though i mean i'm passionate about having unscheduled time if anything my boys would complain a little bit about a little too much unscheduled time but I see the most beautiful personal and also social anecdotes about children who are allowed to have wandering time, who have the healthy boredom of having to figure out what to do or look at themselves in the mirror or enjoy their own company. I think when our children are running from flute to Spanish to soccer, to they just can't do any of that. They have no none of that kick around time, and it's a real passion for me to, to model that and try to hold that line at home at my, in my own home as well. Well, I, you know, you're a model for that and, and doing a great job. We're almost out of time, and I always like to do this at the end of every show. I ask our guest for the one thing, the one idea, the one, uh, maybe you'll go back to something you talked about, or maybe it's something you haven't talked about that, boy, I want to make sure everybody listening to this show hears about. Go ahead and share it with us. Well, I'm gonna fl- I had several options for you, and I'm going to flip back to your favorite, which is I think this idea of activity is not productivity really is the core messaging that we keep coming back to together. And I think that the most powerful thing that viewers, uh, listeners can do is to go home in the next week and simply observe, simply observe sitting at your desk, jumping to the next reactive task, filling time, running from the uncomfortable, unfamiliar feeling of the pause. And just observing that. And I think that there will be an enormous amount of awareness that will simply come just from that gentle, uh, forgiving awareness that comes from that practice. That's awesome. Powerful information, powerful ideas that will make us more effective at work and in our personal lives. Julia, thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you so much. It was really fun. Well, you've been listening to Julia Funt talk about white space at work and at home. And if you didn't get an idea to make yourself more productive and more effective and more valuable to the people you work with and the people you care most about at home, well, then you just weren't listening. My name's Shep Hyken. You've been listening to Amazing Business Radio. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.